in March of 2016, Deborah and I were privileged to hear legendary crooner Tony Bennett in concert right here in Indianapolis. Now, for those of you who, don't, who do not know, I am a big fan of country, no, um, of, I'm a big fan of big band music and jazz music. Uh, that was popular, especially back in the 1930s to 1950s. Uh, back then, it featured guys like uh, Perry Como and Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby and uh, Johnny Mathis. Um, today, there's singers like Michael Buble and Harry Connick Jr., Michael Feinstein, uh, that continue in that same style, those silky voices singing those sentimental jazz standards. But to hear one of the greats in person was exciting. When we heard him, Bennett was 89 years old. He didn't need an introduction, but he used one. Just before he came out, a recording played of Frank Sinatra saying this, For my money, Tony Bennett, is the best singer in the business. Then Tony Bennett walked out to a standing ovation before he ever sang a word. What a way to make an entrance, right? To have the greatest of your genre introduce you as the greatest in that genre. All right, now we're going to switch way, 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 way. We're going to switch gears. Can you place yourself way back in the mindset of a Jew about 4 B.C. You live in Jerusalem, which is supposed to be your homeland, but you're not alone. The most powerful empire ever to rule the world, the Romans, control your country, your city, your livelihood. You have to pay them taxes, you have to follow their rules. You live in a police state. Worst of all, your people, God's chosen people, haven't had a message from God for 400 years. To put that in perspective, if we think of God's revelation like music, it would be as if no one had composed any music since Michael Pretorius in the 1600s Renaissance. No Bach, no Mozart, no Beethoven, no Tchaikovsky, no Irving Berlin, no Tony Bennett, no Taylor Swift. All right, it wouldn't be all bad. Just kidding. You get my point. It's been a long time, longer ago than World War II, Longer ago than the Civil War. Longer ago than the Revolutionary War. We're talking all the way back to the Mayflower. It's been that long since you've heard from God. And as a good Jew, you know all the promises God made to your nation. You've memorized the Pentateuch as a child, like all good Jews did. You know all about Father Abraham. You know all about King David. The thought, you, you thought that the blessings on your land would go on forever and ever. 
It's been a long time waiting for your Avenger to arrive, the Messiah. Every year, you keep on celebrating the Passover every spring, hoping to be rescued, hoping he'll show up. Well, there was good news for you, wasn't there? Because God, in our passage today, is beginning to make the ultimate entrance into this world. He is giving the best introduction ever. And the one who arrives after this introduction is going to be praised by the angels of heaven in a public display over the skies of Bethlehem greater than any fireworks show you've ever seen. But that's for next week. For this morning, realize this. You cannot understand the arrival of Jesus unless you understand it in light of the bigger picture that the Bible provides for you. I want to kind of highlight this message this morning in, in three large sections. If you're taking notes, this is point one. I want to give some general observations, some general observations. And then secondly, I want to talk about some unfinished business. And then finally, I want to talk about some practical takeaways. So let's start this morning with some general observations about our text. Now, we'll have to do a little Bible study here, so I hope you're all right with that. Christians in God's house on the Lord's Day. Bible studies are all right with us, right? Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 and verse 17 seem to stand out as you read through the passage, don't they? Verse 1 serves as an introduction of some sort, and verse 17 as a summary of some sort. Verse 1 literally reads this way in the Greek language. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. It can be translated genealogy or beginning, but literally the word is Genesis. Is this word supposed to take our minds back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis? I think so at least from the perspective that this is a new start. This is a new beginning. This is a new testament. And the earliest promise of salvation that we were given all the way back in Genesis 3.15 in the Garden of Eden, when Eve was told that her seed would stamp on the head of the serpent, that promise is about to be fulfilled. Notice the other major names in verse 1. David and Abraham. Do you see it? Does it seem odd to you that David is mentioned first? He came much later than Abraham, didn't he? About a thousand years later, actually. But he's mentioned here first. I think that's significant. Down in verse 17, we find the order exactly reversed, don't we? Here it's Abraham, and then David, and then Christ. Wait, what's new here? There's something else here in verse 17. The deportation, the exile. When Nebuchadnezzar 
destroyed Jerusalem and took captives to Babylon. You remember that. Captives like Daniel and the three Hebrew slaves, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What is the exile doing here? This was all nice and neat until, until it showed up. We'll have to come back to that. Verse 17 also explains the structure of our passage, doesn't it? If you want a nice, neat outline of this genealogy, you've got one. It's listed for you. 14 generations, then 14 generations, then 14 generations. Why 14? Some have speculated that 14 times 3 is 42, which might form some of the the numbers that are mentioned way back in Daniel's prophecy, in Daniel chapter 9, maybe. What's more likely is it has to do with the Hebrew name for David. The Hebrew name for David is made up of three consonants, D, V, and D, David. And And the Hebrews had an interesting way of assigning numbers to the letters of the alphabet and then using those numbers in in various ways in their writings. So the word for, the numbers for D, V, and D are 4, 6, and 4. That's the number in the alphabet that they are, the Hebrew alphabet. And that adds up to, come on, math majors, Todd, 4, 6, and 4, 14. Oh, there's that number again. So why did Matthew use 14 as a way to divide the sections up? Well, we don't know. We don't know for sure. But wasn't it fun to speculate? Moving on. Another fact. Although these 42 generations do go from Abraham to Jesus, there are missing generations. If we took the time to to look here, we'd find out this is not an exact set of family records. It's a selected set of family records. One author writes this, Matthew is not providing us with a comprehensive list, but rather a selective list. By his selective pattern, he is underscoring his specific purpose. So the best way to get at this passage is not to do a detailed biographical study of every person in the list. That would take a few sermons. The way to go about this is by looking at the purpose God may have had in including him in this list. One, of, one example of this is by noticing that there are women in this genealogy. Did you notice that as we read their names? There are four of them, five if you count Mary at the end. Now, this is significant because These kinds of Jewish lists did not include women. Why? They weren't counted as important when it came to ancestry. It was only the males that were included in these Jewish lists. But they are important in this one. What do they have in common? Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, the wife of Uriah, otherwise known to us as Bathsheba. All of them are either Gentiles or married to a Gentile, as in the case of Bathsheba. Another despised category. 
No women in Jewish lists. Certainly no Gentiles in Jewish lists. All of these women also had lifestyles that were outside what was appropriate in God's law. Ruth was a pagan, Moabitess, idol worshiper. Tamar seduced her father-in-law by dressing like a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba, well, we know that story too, don't we? Her adultery with David led to her firstborn child's death and her husband's murder. What a messed up family tree, huh? Some general observations. Let's move on and talk about some unfinished business. Secondly, let's think through these three sections of 14 generations and see what they might have in common. I think there's at least one main idea that they all share, and it is unfinished business. Look at the sections and see if you see it too. The first section from verse 2 down to verse 6 is about the descendants of Abraham. One of the names mentioned in verse 1. Of course, we know Father Abraham. We're going to do some more Bible study here. Ready? So keep your place here in Matthew. Let's turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And the most, one of the most important promises ever given in the Bible to the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 12. This is when Abraham is still called Abram. Genesis 12. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. All the families of the earth. Blessed through Abraham. Of course, we know the story of Abraham. We know that he did have a son in his old age. Miraculously, Isaac was his name. Isaac would go on to to bear Jacob. Jacob would go on to bear 12 sons who would be the heads of 12 tribes the beginnings of what we know as the nation of Israel. The rest of the Old Testament contains their history, all of their pursuits in the wilderness, through the times of the judges, through the times of the kings, all the rebellion despite the warnings of the prophets, and finally, their eventual destruction and exile. It doesn't seem like all the families of the earth we're blessed through Abraham yet, does it? Then there's a second name. Look at the second group in the middle of 6, verse 6, back in Matthew 6b, down to verse 11, we find the generations of David. The second name, and the one that's mentioned first in, uh, before Abraham in verse 1, significantly, I believe. 
If you know something about the Gospel of Matthew, you know that through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is being presented as a king. And of course, David was the great king of Israel, wasn't he? We're going to go back to the Old Testament again. Hold your place here. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Another one of the great promises of the Bible given to this shepherd who became a king. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's read from verse 8. 2 Samuel verse 8. Now therefore, thus, you shall say to my servant David, God is speaking to his prophet Nathan. You shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name's sake, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now listen to this verse. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, anybody? Uh, how long is forever? Forever, right? So we follow, again, we follow the nation of Israel. David does have a son. His second son of Bathsheba, his name is Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam thinks of himself a little bit too high and mighty, splits the kingdom into northern tribes and southern tribes. The, the, the northern tribes pretty much ruled by all evil people, uh, all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of punishment. Eventually, they go into captivity into the nation of Assyria, 722 B.C. The two southern tribes in the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, have also mostly bad leaders. Peppered in there with a few good ones here and there who are still faithful. And Jerusalem, the capital of that southern kingdom, lasts longer than Samaria, the, the capital of the northern kingdoms. They last all the way till 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar ransacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, the walls of the city, carries them off into captivity. Now, remember back at the beginning, you're that Jew in Jerusalem in 4 B.C. Now, you're in your land. You were able to come back. 
they were able to build again. But you have no one sitting on your throne. You haven't. Since Jehoiachin, the name in our, in our list here is Jeconiah. You haven't had a king on the throne from the house of David. No, wait, wait, wait. The promise to David said, your throne is established forever. Abraham's promise said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. All of them. How is this possible in the place that we are in 4 B.C.? Look over at Psalm 72 for a moment. A Psalm of David talking about the king, talking about this line of succession. It's really a prayer, Psalm 72, and it starts off as a prayer for Solomon. David starts praying about his son. In verse 1, you see that. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. But very quickly, you'll notice in his prayer, things change. And he's no longer praying for his son anymore. He's praying for the king, the Messiah king who will come through his lines, the forever kingdom. For example, look down at, uh, oh, look down, for example, at um, verse 7. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Well, that's not Solomon. May he have dominion from sea to shining sea. Well, it doesn't say shining, but from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, that's not Solomon. Look at verse 9. I think that's, what, that's interesting. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Have you ever heard that term before in the Old Testament about licking the dust? Where does it come up? Do you remember? What creature has to lick the dust? The snake. Genesis chapter 3. Anytime you see references to snakes licking the dust or broken heads in the Old Testament, it's almost always referring to the seeds of the devil. Who is the enemies that lick the dust? Well, that's the enemies of the Lord Jesus. It goes down further, and, and you, you find uh, down in verse 15, Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. In Matthew chapter 2, we find three men, three kings visit Jesus from this area of Sheba in the southern part of Arabia. And you know what they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Long may he live. It goes on and on. But as you can see, it talks about um, just these, these grandiose, absolute statements that, that can't apply to a human king. They have to apply to the forever king. Look down in verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Listen to this. Sound familiar? May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And you will all the families 
of the earth be blessed. That sounds like a connection there between Abraham's promise and David's promise, doesn't it? Back to Matthew. There's one more section in here, and I'll go through it quickly. Verse 12 down to verse 16 is the last section. It's that, it's that section that kind of interrupts our neat little package here of Jesus, David, and Abraham. It's the deportation, the exile. What's that doing in here? Well, I won't take the time to read these verses, but if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting at verse 58 and following, God had given Moses and the people, before they crossed the Red Sea into the Promised Land, he'd given them an ultimatum. He said, if you follow me and obey me, you will be blessed. But if you don't, read through that passage, Deuteronomy 28, 58 and following. Tragedy's going to befall you. Destruction's going to befall you. All the diseases that they suffered in Egypt during the ten plagues, they're going to come on to you. It's going to be bad for you. And that's exactly what we find Israel doing as they progress through their history, constantly complaining to their leaders, constantly rebelling and turning to idols. And God constantly shows the mercy. He's the most long-suffering God, isn't he? Haven't you found him to be so? Oh, my goodness, look at the Old Testament and see a long-suffering, merciful God. But eventually, he put them into exile. You know, there's a huge promise made to Abraham. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed in you. I don't see it fulfilled before Matthew 1. And I've read the Bible. I don't see it. There's a huge significant statement made to David in 2 Samuel 7 about a forever kingdom. And I don't see that fulfilled before Matthew 1. And the exile, at least in this record, in Matthew's record here in Matthew 1, it doesn't have a resolution. Do you notice that? It doesn't talk about the exile and then the return. Now, we know the Jews returned to the land and rebuilt the city and the temple and the walls under Ezra and Nehemiah and and those other leaders. But they never had a true king to sit on the throne of David after they came home. So there's a sense in which Israel, at this time in their history, is still in exile. Certainly in spiritual exile. No king. No word from God. No hope. But God would fulfill His promises to them. Every one of them. Not because of their righteousness. Oh my. Have you looked at the list? Did you see our good friend Ahaz in there? You remember Ahaz and Jezebel? Wonderful people, weren't they? Do you remember Manassas? Manasseh's in here in this list. One of the worst of all of the kings. We could go on and on and pick out these individuals. You know what what they are? They're sinners. Every one of them. And God is going to fulfill his promises to him, to them, not because of their righteousness, but in spite of their sinfulness. And a baby will be born. More on that next week. Number three, some practical takeaways. I want to give you four or five of them here quickly. Number one, God's dealings are with actual people, not ideal people. Did you notice that? 
Some of you sometimes come into this Christmas season and you've got it wrong in your heads that God is going to include good people and he's going to reject all the bad people. The fact of the matter is the Bible says we're all bad people. Some are worse than others. But we're all equally lost before God. In the world's perspective, both the good and the bad Boy, they both need a Savior, don't they? But God deals with actual people here, not ideal people. You should be glad because you're not an ideal person. Sorry to tell you. And you know what? Neither am I. Number two, God used all the messy stuff to accomplish his purposes. God used all the messy stuff. You don't read through this and say, oh, this is a beautifully clean and tidy, neat and organized and perfect genealogy. It clearly isn't. And that ought to be some encouragement to us. Because I don't know about you, but if I examine the history of my life, it's not clean, tidy, organized, neat, and perfect either. But God is bigger than these things, isn't he? He uses the messy stuff to accomplish his purposes. Number three, God's not operating on our timetable. You know the promise to Abraham? took 2,000 years to come to fruition. You ever stop and think about that? That promise given to Abraham? Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ. 2,000 years it took until the baby was born who would, in him, all the nations of the earth be blessed. Sometimes we think about another promise that Jesus has made to us. I will come again. And we think, been a long time is he really coming i mean really i mean like it's 2021 and this was in one he made the promise in one friends god's time is not your time his ways are higher than ours if the Jews had to wait 2,000 years for a promise to be fulfilled for abraham we certainly can wait 2,000 years and more for the promise that Jesus made to us. And you know what? He'll keep it, just like he kept the first one. So don't give up. Don't give up your hope. Don't stop looking to the sky. He's coming. He's promised. He fulfills his promise. Number four, the family line of Jesus contained some who were moral outcasts. It reminds us that Jesus reaches out to those who are morally messed up, which again is all of us. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Anybody doing that perfectly? That is a moral obligation we have to the creator of the universe. The truth is we are immoral by nature. Number five, the family line of Jesus was ethnically diverse. Jews and Gentiles You see it right here in the genealogy. And the diversity that is represented in this, not least of all in Ruth, a Moabitess, an idolatrous pagan, is a clear reminder to us that we are called to proclaim the wonder of God's grace to a sinful world. And what is the gospel? Well, the Christmas story will tell us, won't it? Unto you is born this day in the city of David 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It is news, it is good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Jesus came so that all the families of the earth might be blessed. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front for our final songs. Our leadership team, if they'll assemble here, prepare for the Lord's table. As these folks are moving, just a final thought or two. Stay with me. Aren't you amazed that God would love you? I mean, isn't it amazing that he would save you and save me? Isn't that amazing? Take the history of your life, even up to today. The fact of the matter is, it's not all pretty, is it? It's not all perfect. This place is, it's messed up. If Jesus had such individuals as his ancestors, we should not be surprised that he has such individuals as his followers. Very shortly in his gospel, Matthew will introduce us to one who is a friend of sinners who did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he is encouraging us to realize that God's purposes are fulfilled in ways that we would never imagine. And that God's plan includes events that we would never desire. Right, Israelites in the exile? And it would include people that we might normally exclude. But with our God, even the excluded are included. Aren't you glad about that? You better be because you're a bunch of Gentiles sitting in front of me. Aren't you glad the excluded are included? Most genealogies are simply a record of deaths but not this one. Because at the end of this one, a child will be born who will never perish. Matthew's genealogy has a past, it has a present, but friends, it has a future. And although Jesus himself never had children while on earth, He has adopted millions of them. And in Jesus Christ, we are now brought into this family. This family. Matthew 1. This family. Your names and mine and all the followers of the Lord Jesus are added to this list we become part of his story. This time of year, there's a lot of talk about an important man who's making a list and checking it twice. Friends, this is the only list you need to make sure your name is on. The list that the Bible calls 
the Lamb's book of life. I hope your name is there. I hope you're added to this list with Abraham and with David and all of these other sinners who the Lord would give the opportunity to be saved through faith. That baby, of course, we'll learn a lot more about in the weeks to come and his purpose in life. But this morning, just be thankful for the Lord's mercy in your life and including you who were far off Gentiles. He drew near. Jesus fulfilled the promise to Abraham because in all the families of the earth now, they can be blessed through him. You were. 2,000 years later, you were. And Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father in his rightful place. One day he'll be seated on a throne on this earth and will rule and reign as David's rightful, eternal descendant. And we can have confidence in our king born the baby in the manger.